make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina. Keeping it non-controversial. Hello and welcome to episode 41. I've got talk show host David Pakman here with me today. Hi, David. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I have been a fan of yours for quite some time and you're one of the very few people I think that hasn't really lost their mind in 2017. <laughs> To put it that way, like, I mean, I've had a lot of, you know, intellectual heroes that I find that post-Trump, I'm not really feeling anymore. And um, yeah, you're, you're someone that I, you know, still agree with. And really, as an ex-Muslim myself, I've had a hard time finding commentators that can understand that criticism of Islam can be fine, but also don't go towards the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, uh, race and IQ type of thing. Well, that's good. I'm glad that I've been able to carve out a space that, that I mean, that that's sort of the goal, right? I, I feel like it should be acceptable to make uh, sort of empirical critiques of anything that's worthy of critique or criticism, if that's where we sort of end up. But at the same time, I, I think that the problem is that there are definitely groups, uh, particularly in sort of recesses of the internet that will take, you know, a, a, a very specific criticism and expand it to justify really horrible policy in many cases. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's specifically what you're kind of referring to, but that's at least what I've observed. Yeah. I mean, other than policy too, it's just, just a horrifying, uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, you know, like they, they'll take like, legitimate sort of secular atheist criticisms of Islam and then use those talking points. Um, like people like Tommy Robinson from Pegida will use those points. And you're like, wow, I mean, I know where you got those talking points from, but that's not how they were intended. So, yeah, it's been disturbing. And, and I've seen like a shift in the atheist scene too, like sort of a split. I don't know if you've noticed that. I've noticed a split, but I'm curious what you think it, the two sort of factions that it's split into are. Uh, well, there's the obvious SJW and anti-SJW faction, right? So it's like left and anti-left to, to really simplify it. Like progressive is a dirty word. Yeah, I mean, and that's been that's the progressive being a dirty word has been going on for a bit of time. I, I think you're right in terms of the the SJW anti SJW split. My only hesitation to identify it that way is that even that term, sort of like the term regressive left, has been totally bastardized now. Oh, yeah. Where it's just it's it it's become. Even using those terms, I feel like you're already kind of losing the conversation because you're allowing someone else to define the terms, but you're not wrong in terms of the sentiments and positions you're describing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't mean like that I legitimize the term SJW. Like I don't identify as an SJW, but that's kind of the, the side that I fall on if you ask anyone, right? Like Because I'm on the left and I care about racism and sexism. And um, 
I don't think that, you know, progressivism is a mental illness. And <laughs> <laughs> right. I was recently interviewed um, by on a platform where uh, I was basically unknown to the audience. So I was getting the opportunity to kind of like define myself from the get go. And mm. one of the questions that came up from the audience was, uh, w- are you a social justice warrior? And it's like, how do you answer that? Because if you say yes, you're already tagging yourself in a way that that has been completely sort of uh, made toxic. And if you say no, you're going to be seen by some as saying, I don't support social justice, which which is also not accurate. So it's very difficult to answer a question like that. Yeah, yeah, with the connotations that the words have today. Like I remember maybe two years ago where there was like a healthy portion of actual people on the left that were like, oh yeah, SJWs, and this has gone too far. And they're happy to criticize the left when it's excessive. Um, but now it seems like anyone left of Richard Spencer is an SJW. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that that's one issue. And then at the same time, I think that there's another issue altogether, which is that anybody to the left of Republican senators is considered very left, even even within the left. Like there are people oh, yeah. that identify as left who are really only marginally more progressive than, you know, Joe Manchin, who I guess is like the most conservative Republican senator in the United States. Uh, I'm sorry, a conservative Democratic senator in the United States. And and it's like, are you are you really on the left or are you just slightly to the left right. of what's considered mainstream right now? Right, right. And they think everything is far left, crazy SJW agenda. So things have gotten confusing and you've done some stuff like, you know, you did a deep dive into classical liberalism because some terms are being used in very sort of confusing ways, inconsistent ways. So, yeah, I really appreciate your clarity on certain issues, right? Especially the race and IQ thing. Like that was something that was really not um, sitting right with me, the way that it was being discussed in the atheist scene specifically, Um, I mean, obviously, there are people on the left that just don't want to engage with that conversation at all, like you said in your video about it. But I I think that the ways that you broke it down was really useful because there's ways to misinterpret that information. And let me just um, give you a moment to talk more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, we I became interested in race and IQ some time ago, but it really became much more prominent uh, when Sam Harris interviewed um, uh, the author of The Bell Curve. Uh, is, I always forget his first name. It's Charles, Charles. Murray, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that kind of came to the forefront, and for for better or worse, a lot more people started talking about this issue of race and IQ, and I, I, there and there was such a misunderstanding of. Not only of the data, but even if you understand the data or misunderstand it, the conclusions that some people were sort of coming to were really, really disturbing. So obviously I can't sort of condense a 30-minute video yeah, yeah, of here, but my, my approach was first let's figure out what we even mean by race. And that already is opening up a can of worms because, you know, you have people that assign themselves uh, wor- ter- terms like race realists. Yeah. You have those who uh, use the term social construct to talk about race, but don't even really understand what that means. So first we had to kind of unpack that. Like, what can we, what what are we talking about when we say race and what aren't we talking about? Right. Then and it's you not so clearly of, defined, you know? No, certainly. No. I mean, when you, when you talk, there's, 
it's very easy to hear someone say race is a social construct and interpret that they're they are saying there is no value to um, the the categories of race that we've established. And obviously that's not true. There's no question that there are huge implications to uh, what, what we consider to be race. But for, from the purposes of IQ, the important point was that biologically, there are no clean lines between races, that someone that might be identified as an African-American who has roots in Africa, for example, um, that the actual biological differences between them and someone from Morocco and someone from Southern Italy or whatever, right? Pick your examples. Mm -hmm. There are no real fine lines between someone that counts on an IQ test as one thing or the other thing. And that's sort of where the problem is. And, and that's a difficult conversation to have because it requires nuance. And there's a lot of people that want either, hey, either race is a social construct or it's not, and there are very clean lines between the categories of race that, that we've identified. And unless you can go into more depth than that, you're not going to get anywhere. Right, right. And the thing that's, that, that was really important in your video, I think, is that you, you showed how, yes, there are differences in the results among you know how we classify different races, but you did not sort of downplay the... Um, importance of environmental factors, right? And 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 that's what bothers me about uh, Charles Murray. And I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for saying this, um, but you know he he seems to sort of present it as if it's inherent, right? As if it's innate, as if this is how the races are, and there's like not much environmentally that makes such a difference. And you also pointed out his connections with what was it pioneer, the pioneer fund, which, you know, That's right. has um, stuff to do with Nazi Germany and eugenics. And, you know, I think that that was very important, like to present a clearer picture, you can't just sort of champion him. You have to present the ways in which his study was compromised as well. Of course, and we attempted to do that. And and I, one of the most interesting things that that came out of doing the research, um, along with with our producer on that video, is this idea that when you look at sort of the average. Um, Latino person, that there's a significant amount for many people of what we might consider Native American genetic ancestry. So would their IQ result count towards the average IQ of a Latino person or mm -hmm. a Native American, right? And that, that's just one example of how the data really don't tell us nearly as much as some so-called race realists would like yeah. to believe. Well, actually, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a trend among white supremacists too to like get these DNA tests to yeah. sort of prove how white they are <laughs> and often it backfires <laughs> yeah it doesn't really quite work out like how they, they want it to and then they're not pure enough and it's just a mess yeah but in fact there was this uh, there's this guy craig cobb who years ago he might even be in prison now i'm not sure at, at some point he was in he was in jail or prison he wanted to create like a white only enclave in one of the dakotas i don't know if it was north or south dakota and i interviewed him and it was it, it, it was outrageous it was a totally outrageous interview but he later appeared on a program i don't know if it was in the uk or in canada or the u.s that that was hosted by a black woman and they had him do a dna test and he ended up being like 15 percent <laughs> sub-saharan african or something like that and uh he basically just called into question the results of the IQ test, if I recall correctly. <laughs> That's pretty predictable.
or I'm sorry, of the uh, DNA test, not IQ. Test. Oh yeah. So yeah, that's that's how I guess unreliable it is to sort of judge race based on how you visualize it, right? Even white supremacists get it wrong. That's right. Yeah. Um, but you actually presented like a view that's in opposition to Sam's, I guess. And how did that? How did that go? Uh, I mean, hey, you know, we like with anything, we got dislikes on YouTube and angry emails and tweets, but you know, not not a huge deal. We we did the research, we put together the video that we felt reflected the facts as as uh, as we saw them, and that's that. I mean, with with everything we do, there are people that disagree, and it's just sort of part of part of what we do. Right. Well, yeah, you can't find someone that you agree with one hundred percent on everything, um, but you know. One thing that I talk about, I've talked about on my show before, is the the way that you've interviewed Richard Spencer. Mm. It's uh, something that I, you know, I thought was really, really well done, and it's like it's a hard thing to do, I think, to talk to extremists this effectively, and a lot of people fail. But you were like really polite, but you did not let him go on anything. You pushed back on a lot, and not only did you push back, but you sort of extracted. Uh, the meanings behind sort of his sanitized version of how he likes to put things. So I thought that was really important, but you also got a lot of heat for that. I saw like people were hating on you for just engaging him at all. Yeah, there's a couple different things that went on, and I've interviewed extremists for a very long time. There's one contingent that just says, uh, extremists should never be interviewed because interviewing them gives them a platform. Giving them a platform implies legitimacy, and you will end up actually legitimizing the views that you are uh, pr- presumably trying to deflate or or poke holes in. I tend to reject that as a general concept, right? Mm-hmm. I do believe that if you bring someone on with absolutely deplorable views and, and views that are not based in data and facts, and you basically uh, uh, don't provide any opposition. And the opposition doesn't, doesn't have to be yelling and screaming, right? It can be asking the right questions or whatever else. That, I think, does present some problems. And there, there are people that do that, and that's not my style. But I do think that just ignoring these views, number one, doesn't make them go away. Mm-hmm. And number two, if the population at large isn't aware that these views are there, the individuals with these views can actually start to successfully exert inf- influence over our legislators. If it's not known that there are these factions that have policy ideas, they can, under the radar, start to influence uh, elected officials, and that's a really, really bad thing. So I actually think there is value, number one, to being aware that these views exist. Now, of course, you can be aware of them without – uh, giving them platforms to, to be interviewed. But I think that the key is you need to have a prepared interviewer who knows the arguments, knows the holes in the arguments, and knows how to ask questions that expose that. And that's what I try to do in these interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are people who claim to try to do that, but they just really just softball them and end mm-hmm. up causing harm, I believe. So it's important for me in an interview with an extremist to see that someone's actually making an effort to extract and expose those views, because obviously, if you just let them frame it the way that they want to frame it, it's going to be the best, most sanitized version possible. 
That's right. And, you know, people said with the Richard Spencer interview that, that the danger was that because he is articulate and well-spoken mm-hmm. and, and has come up with language to present some of his views, that sounds relatively benign, right? Yeah. Uh, that the risk is people could come away more convinced that they should allow people like Richard Spencer, you know, a seat at the, the table of, mm-hmm. of legitimate discussions or whatever. I would challenge that because there's no question that at the macro level, you might find some individuals who watched my interview with Richard Spencer and were influenced in his direction. There's no legitimate way to suggest that that would be the net effect. So for every one person that said, wow, that really didn't sound bad, uh, maybe I should pay more attention to the views of someone like Richard Spencer, I would argue that there were uh, many, many more people who realized the danger of having an articulate and well-spoken person with those dangerous ideas, and it probably created more sentiment against his movement. So I just reject the idea that the net effect would be more defenders of Richard Spencer's view as a result of my interview. Right, right. I think I, I agree with you in in your in the case of your interview, but there are, I mean, I think it's also important to weigh how effective an interviewer is. And there are some that just aren't. So the net effect of their interviews could possibly be bad. But yeah, I'm not of the, you know, of the opinion that you should never engage with them. In in fact, I think it's important to engage and expose and all that. So yeah, I just wanted to say that you did a great job and it's, it's, it's rare these days. Even I think the New York Times article, how, how did you feel about that one? Sorry, which New York Times? The the one recently that got like hundreds of thousands of angry tweets about it, where they had to write a piece where where it was like I think they were profiling sort of you know in a detached manner a white supremacist, and they talked about his wedding registry and his hopes and dreams and how they have muffin tins and pineapple slicers on their wedding registry and how they oh eat. yeah 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 um I it, it, this is the uh, the like the Nazi next door thing yeah over, exactly right? that one. Yeah, I only looked at it very briefly. I was away at the time of the um, uh, that the interview came out, so I have and I, I have not done an, like a full analysis of it. But, but I think that the um, the the danger with any of these again is that it's the the people who are familiar with these movements. Like for example, if I read that article, and I I did read it, as I read it, um, regardless of how the article was written. I was not going to develop any sympathy for the views yeah. of the, uh, the the 29 or 30-year-old dude that, that they profiled. Um, but the, the question is, if someone is only like a casual follower of these movements, might they see that article and think, oh, this person is being profiled as a normal participant in the political, political system? And that's where the danger comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's probably why so many people were upset, right? Like there was a sort of a straw man criticism of the critics that was going around that, you know, no, reading this will not turn people into Nazis. And I don't think that most people believe that just reading like a soft, cute piece about Nazis will turn people into Nazis. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I tend to agree with that. Yeah. But I think there's like, it's sort of sending out a signal that, that to, to people who have maybe on the edge or, you know, people that are sympathetic already, they could be emboldened. I think those are legitimate concerns. It's conceivably possible, but I just don't believe, I've seen no evidence at this time that coverage of neo-Nazis in the net increases the number of neo-Nazis. 
Yeah, I mean, I actually I was having this discussion with someone on with a couple of people on Twitter just now, and they were and we were mentioning your interview of Richard Spencer as a as a good example of how to engage Nazis. But some people were saying that I think uh, anti extremist organizations like SPLC have said that any exposure of them is sort of good for them. So I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen the numbers on this, but I don't know. Do you know if that's what anti-extremist organizations claim? Or I wouldn't be able to speak to, to what the SPLC's position is. What I can tell you is that there's this documentary uh, about, um, uh, the, the, I think it's called Accidental Courtesy is the name of it. Um, and in the movie, it actually follows uh, Daryl Davis, who is a musician who happens to be black and he has befriended a number of KKK and neo-Nazis mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a lot of them have ended up quitting and, and sort of leaving the movement. And there's this great moment in the film where they actually set up a meeting between uh, Mark Potok of the SPLC, who I've interviewed a number of times and Daryl, who I've also interviewed a number of times. And Daryl kind of explains to Mark what it is he does. And Mark kind of put it, it, it he certainly didn't seem particularly into the the, the strategies of Daryl in befriending individual neo-Nazis and KKK members and getting them to rethink their views. But he did say something interesting, which is that Daryl's strategy is a sort of retail strategy, right? Going one by one with mm. these individuals. And that the SPLC is more of a wholesale strategy where they are trying to wipe out these groups either okay. legislatively or through law enforcement or whatever. So it's it's definitely a different approach. Yeah, that's very helpful. That's a helpful way of putting it because I think that a combination of different types of tactics can work, right? So it doesn't always have to be one or the other. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I guess we can't expect people to befriend Nazis, right? So there was this article about, what was it, a hug a Nazi? Like, wasn't it after Charlottesville? I forget who wrote it, but there was an article about hugging Nazis, and people were upset at that. And, and I can understand, like, suggesting that and expecting people to do that, that's a bit much. Even though, you know, practically it might work if you have all the patience in the world to sort of befriend someone who sees you as subhuman, but that can't be an expectation now. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Okay. You know, the first time I heard about you, you were talking about Reza Aslan, and, and I appreciated the way that you sort of debunked his nonsense. And and I'm seeing a mirrored sort of effect. So the thing is, with Reza Aslan, he acted like an apologist for the worst elements of Islam by sort of making it seem reasonable, right? And it's not so bad, and you can't blame religion, you can't blame God, you bring to religion whatever you want to bring to religion. And now I'm seeing in the atheist scene, the same people who criticize Reza Aslan for that kind of thing, be that way about this new neo-Nazi rising movement. And there's a very pedantic and don't call anybody a Nazi. People saying Heil Hitler are not Nazis unless they've traveled from Nazi Germany. Nobody is a Nazi and just really apologetic stuff. So have you have you noticed that at all? I have noticed it, and it's interesting to, to sort of link the, the two. Uh, I have noticed that, and I think that at a certain point we have to sort of think a little bit more uh, practically about the implications of, of making that 
argument. And, you know, in my video about Ressa Aslan, which at this point I think is almost, it's close to a two-year-old video at this point, incredibly. I've said this before. I don't know Reza Aslan. Um, I don't have anything uh, as an individual to say uh, about him. The analysis really was of claims that he had made versus what the facts on the ground are mm -hmm. as we were able to research. One example of that was female genital mutilation. Yeah. Uh, an example where, yes, it's true that around the world, female genital mutilation is not exclusively in Muslim communities, but it is disproportionately so. Mm -hmm. um, it's a sort of similar issue. This Everybody ends up getting ang angry with me uh, <laughs> when it comes to the issue of Islamic terror around the world, because there are some people who say in a very sort of matter of fact way, Islam specifically is the sole cause of individuals who are Muslims committing acts of terror. That, that's yeah, sort of I disagree. One. Yeah. On the other side of that uh, is this view that religion has nothing to do Agreed, with yeah. the frequency of, of Islamic terror in 2017. And it is basically related to the sort of socioeconomic mm -hmm. standing of Muslims in Middle Eastern countries, etc. Yeah. I think both of those views are ridiculous, yeah, right? I think agree. That it's wrong to say that religion has no part to play. Mm -hmm. However, it's true th that if socioeconomic circumstances were different, that if the relationship between the West and the, the Middle Eastern Muslim world were different, that you might not see interpretations of Islam that led to disproportionately more Islamic terror around the world. And mm -hmm. remember, in the United States, terror is mostly not Islamic, right? It's it's white Christian men. Mm -hmm. But around the world, it is overwhelmingly um, uh, Islamic terror. So I, why is it so difficult for us to say, hey, it's neither one nor the other. We have to consider both of those possibilities in context. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think just solely blaming it on religion is also very, very simplistic and denying that it has anything to do with religion is just, it's just wrong. So yeah, it shouldn't be so hard to see that it's a combination of a bunch of things. And the problem is, in at least in corporate media, that that view is just boring, right? I mean, it's the, the way that most of these conversations are set up is here's one person who says religion's the problem, here's another person who disagrees. Mm -hmm. Or here's someone who says the problems are the foreign policy of the West to the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. And here's someone else who disagrees with that. But in these five-minute debates on corporate media, there's really no space for the, the nuance that's required to discuss the issue. Yeah, absolutely. But also I think like people are just, they're, they're just not that interested in nuanced opinions. I find... Yeah that they are looking for simple answers, like easy McNugget answers. Well, that's a, that's why uh, I believe that the right has a structural advantage on many political issues, because uh, take taxation, for example, right? This is an example I give when I speak at colleges and in, in the class I teach. This is a really good example that kind of explains it. The position of the right simplified on taxation is, hey, it's your money. You've earned the money. The government shouldn't take that money. So we want the lowest possible tax rate. That's a very, very simple and coherent position, even though I don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. The position of the left is not the opposite of that, right? The opposite position would be, 
you're not entitled to your money, and the government should take as much money from you as possible through taxation. There's no one on the left who believes that, Mm -hmm. right? But the problem is the position of the left is, yes, we would all like to keep as much money as, as we can keep, but we have to recognize that without properly funding government, a lot of the institutions we take for granted, like public works and public education and police and fire, would not be properly funded. You've already lost, in a sense, Mm -hmm. in the world of sound bites and simple explanations because you have on the one side, it's your money. You should keep as much of that money as possible. And the other side is inherently nuanced. That puts the right at a structural advantage on many issues politically. Mm -hmm. And also in terms of like, say, I... I don't know, maybe I'm biased, but but in terms of principles getting in the way, right? So I I see that the right is able to ally with anyone they want to further their cause. So even when it comes to white supremacists accepting people of color in just to further their own agenda, they'll do it. But when it comes to the left, it's like, oh, you know, I want to criticize Islam, for example, if I take me, but I will not, I will not join hands with an anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant person to do it. That's exactly right. I think that the left is less willing to find someone who um, is incredibly xenophobic and racist, but uh, believes that uh, uh, that there should be legal and safe access to abortions. The, the left just is not, by and large, going to say embrace someone like that because they share a common view on abortion, for example. You don't really see that as often, but mm-hmm. you're absolutely right that on the right, you do see these examples of the right championing individuals that they might disagree with on 19 out of 20 political views, significantly so, but if they can make use of that one out of 20 issues where they agree, they'll do it. And you could argue that that's smart of them, right? Mm-hmm. You could, we're, we're sort of talking morally about why it is or isn't happening, but you could argue that from a political standpoint, it's actually smart to do that. Yeah, because this way the left is, again, disadvantaged from the very start, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. And this is a problem that I see often as an ex-Muslim, and it's becoming quite a big issue. I don't know how closely follow the ex-Muslim scene, but for me it was something that, you know, after leaving Islam, it was like this amazing thing to discover there are other people who also, you know, have walked away from the religion because it's so not it well it wasn't talked about very often so a lot of us just felt very alone and thought nobody else like us existed and then we all came together under this very vague umbrella of rejecting islam but now you see that the right sort of preys on ex-muslims and uh, finds like people who came out of very vulnerable situations who are very angry and just grabs them and then they become these like right-wing ex-Muslims and some of them have joined hands with like you know Anne-Marie Waters of uh, Pegida in Britain and you know when she's starting like this extreme far-right party and um, Ensaf Haider, Raif Badawi's wife is like you know tweeting support of Laura Loomer and other alt-right-esque figures and It's just become very tainted and very disturbing for me to see because this thing that I believed in, this movement that was, you know, that had a noble goal of destigmatizing apostasy in Islam has become sort of alt-light, alt-right adjacent. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm seeing that happen quite a bit. And it's just it's so toxic. And it's counterproductive in every way. But I, I genuinely don't see how to prevent it. Because there are so many political factions that are just waiting to take advantage of any of these movements to yeah. sort of, uh, uh, not necessarily subjugate, but to uh, misuse or pervert maybe the original goals of the movement. Right. And then people who are sort of hurting and vulnerable, will buy into that because they are getting a lot of popularity, a lot of warmth, a lot of, you know, false and disingenuous concern, but it feels good when you're coming out of an abusive situation. It feels good to lash out and project or whatever. Absolutely. Um, so it's been sad. And even in terms of, you know, other than the ex-Muslim scene, just the atheist scene, sometimes you see like criticisms of religion being like, the one that I hate the most that is gaining a lot of steam right now is uh, Abrahamic religions are worse than Nazism. So they made like a meme where it has all the religious symbols and a pile of shit along with the swastika. Mm. And so this Jewish woman comments underneath saying, you know, that's really offensive to put the Star of David as equivalent of, you know, Nazism. And uh, then the response is, oh, you know, religions are bullshit. Ha, ha, ha. Like, you know, actually... Judaism is worse than Nazism, you know, I owned this theist, and it's just, it's such a horrible way of, it's so ahistorical and just really tasteless. I don't know, what do you think of that kind of critique? I, I completely agree, and I think the problem is that once you start trying to debate it on the merits, you've kind of already lost. Like, if, if you start listing the reasons why Judaism is not worse than Nazism, you're already playing the game, right? Once you even accept the debate, you're sort of already losing, and that's the danger of it, because you have to choose between leaving it unopposed and hoping that it doesn't gain any steam, or you start engaging in a debate that is that is crazy, to quite frankly, yeah, right? Yeah. Start making a list of the ways in which Judaism is bad and good versus Nazism. It's a crazy debate to even have, so <laughs> it's a very difficult thing for, for us to, to think sort of think about the best strategy for. I lean towards, differently than when it comes to engaging extremists individually, I lean towards kind of leaving it alone and, and not not even engaging and, and considering it not legitimate because on the one hand, the emboldening of white supremacy, there's a very clear path for that influencing our elected officials and, and policy. Mm -hmm. I don't think memes about Judaism being worse than Nazism are close to actually having a real impact on society. So I, I would tend to think more about leaving those alone. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. In terms of the larger society, and I'm very thankful that we aren't there at the moment. But yeah. in terms of, like, say, the the movements that I cared about as a, as a younger, you know, godless person leaving religion— and, you know, so if ex-Muslim movements are tainted with this stuff, and there are, like, the most prominent ex-Muslims and reformist Muslims, for example, Majid Nawaz is going on tour with people who proudly tout Islam and Judaism are worse than Nazism to talk, to, to allow them to represent a film on tolerance in Islam. Mm, yeah, I think that's problematic. Very bad. There are bad things, <laughs> there are bad things happening, and people with really, really bad ideas being... Uh, promoted and rewarded, and I don't really see anybody combating that. Yeah. So, yeah, sorry to dump all that on you. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I the first time I ever heard of you was as an atheist commenter, so that's why it came to my mind, this whole Reza Aslan and the split in atheism thing. I don't know how closely you identify with the movement at all, but 
Really, I don't in any way in the sense that, I mean, I, I'm a non-religious person and I de- identify both ethnically and culturally with Judaism very strongly, but mm-hmm. I don't have religious beliefs. So it's not, you know, I'm a critic of organized religion and sort of belief in the supernatural and, and all of that stuff at the micro level. But big picture, I really consider myself more of a political commentator rather than like a member of the atheist movement or the new atheists or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, I'm I'm starting to feel like similarly sort of like I, I now I'm more identify culturally as Muslim in this sort of political climate than I did ever even though I'm like not religious and ex-Muslim by beliefs. But mm. you know like my cultural identity feels like it's coming out pretty strongly when there's talk of Muslim bans and you know, things like when, when Muslims are being persecuted legitimately around me and I can see it, like no one's going to look at me and be like, oh, yeah, she's an ex-Muslim. Let me not expose her to anti-Muslim bigotry. So I feel like even as an ex-Muslim, I have to speak out against it. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing about when there is one of the greatest ways to coalesce groups is to uh, put a target on them effectively, mm. right? And and that's an interesting thing that I, I think doesn't just apply to your situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that's how ex-Muslims got together. That's how atheists felt so connected in the early days of debating creationists and flat earthers. And now are the days of race and IQ and anti-immigration. <laughs> but Indeed. yeah. Um, so just last thing I wanted to ask you about was, uh, this whole Sam Cedar thing. What were your thoughts on this whole campaign that Mike Cernovich started and how it backfired on him? And yeah, I think it was a bogus campaign to begin with. And I don't know how much people, uh, in your audience necessarily are, are up to speed on what happened, but Sam Cedar was, um, in 2009 or 2008, he had a series of tweets being very critical of Roman Polanski, who was, of course, um, a- accused of rape and convicted. I think his charge was reduced, but he was going to serve jail time, and he basically fled to Europe and hasn't been back since to avoid jail time. And Sam was in, in a series of different tweets and commentary at the time. He made one sort of satirical tweet um, that Mike Cernovich found and pulled out and started demanding that Sam be kicked off of MSNBC where he's a contributor and that his advertisers pull money, etc. And initially it, it sort of worked because MSN, the, the lynch mob that developed mm. from Mike Cernovich um, got MSNBC to say they weren't going to renew Sam's contract, but ultimately it backfired and MSNBC said, no, we, you know, we made a mistake. We are going to have Sam back on. And the truth is that it was a completely the motivations of the people who were saying they were offended by Sam's eight-year-old tweet. Um, were completely fabricated. It's the same people that claim to be against outrage culture Mm -hmm. and against the lack of being able to joke about things like rape or sexual assault or whatever. And then they were claiming that Sam's tweet clearly satirical from nine years ago or eight years ago was was deeply offensive to them. So I'm glad that it backfired. I think it was the right decision. Uh, and I think that in the end, Sam's going to end up in a much better position because of this, because uh, a lot of people that weren't even aware of his podcast now are. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he's getting more paid signups. I've been texting with him over the last few days. Sam's a friend of mine, and it's just been super hectic interviews. He was back on MSNBC. So I think it's, a, it's great that it backfired, because the problem is that had it succeeded, it would have maybe delegitimized the actual 
instances where we should be Mm -hmm. offended or outraged or demand the firing or resignation of someone over comments or actions. This was not one of those cases. So had it succeeded, it would have delegitimized the um, uh, uh, accurate cases where that should be That was probably the intent, too, like one of the hopes of Cernovich, because, I mean, it's rich coming from him. The things that he has tweeted, not ironically, are horrific rape apologetics. Absolutely. So the fact that he's someone that was trying to get someone fired over, like, uh, a a thing that was criticizing people who are apologetic of Polanski was just mind-boggling. Yes, absolutely. But this is the world we live in. I mean, there's a lot of things that the anti-outrage culture people, they they pick, they use to their advantage, showing that they really aren't very anti-anything if they can use it to their advantage. So No doubt. No yeah, doubt. <laughs> that's uh, that's how it works. It's a bunch of disingenuous, opportunistic people. Well, fortunately, this time they failed, and and sort of the right w- the right outcome is the one that took place. Right. Yeah, and I'm sort of relieved to hear you say that. You know, there are instances where someone can do or say something so horrible where they can be fired because this. Um, Opposition to outrage culture has led to this position where it's like, no, nothing you can say or do should ever get you fired. But I think we always tend to deal in extremes. These are the simple answers that people are always looking for. You're either for it or against it. It's also funny to me that the same people politically who defend the rights of corporations to do whatever they want – as soon as a corporation says, oh, the public statements of this employee don't reflect our values, so we're firing them, all of a sudden they shouldn't be allowed to do that? Like, it's just a yeah, complete contradiction yeah, yeah. in terms in, of ideology. In so many ways, exactly. You know, there's the whole find another baker if you're a gay person wanting a cake, but then there's, oh my gosh, YouTube, demonetize my videos. Well, find another YouTube. Right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's funny because I've been told as someone who grew up in Saudi Arabia as a woman that I wasn't sufficiently oppressed in Saudi Arabia by the anti-SJW crowd because <laughs> I, don't, I don't serve the right-wing narrative that, you know, all Muslims are evil. And so attacks to discredit me are common, just discredit my whole ex-Muslimness, the fact that I'm not a legitimate ex-Muslim or that I'm Norwegian maybe, or that I'm just not, haven't been oppressed enough in Saudi Arabia. It's absurd. Totally absurd. Yeah. (laughs) But anyways, thank you so much, David, for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I think you are one of the clearest voices out there still. So thank you for being able to criticize the left when it is necessary and also not go overboard. I mean, I heard you talk about uh, Dave Rubin being a Trump apologist, which made me laugh because he was on Fox talking about Trump derangement syndrome. And, yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, That's a, a whole other <laughs> topic for a different day I right guess. right yeah but thank you thank you for speaking clearly on that too not many My people pleasure, do and i really appreciate you having me take care thank you bye thanks for listening to another episode of polite conversations you can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it making some noise about it or contributing via patreon patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes no ian mangoes Also, you can follow me on Twitter at NiceMangoes. 
If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal, nicemangos.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no E in mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help. <laughs>